Upon Raji's death, Indra begged Raji's sons for the return of the heavenly planet. They did not return it, however, although they agreed to return Indra's shares in ritualistic ceremonies. Hmm. Thereafter, Brihaspati, the spiritual master of the demigods, offered oblations in the fire so that the sons of Raji would fall from moral principles. When they fell, Lord Indra killed them easily because of their degradation. Not a single one of them remained alive. This is a pretty powerful fire yagya. Fire yagyas are, of course, for different purposes. Now here we see one that has a malefic purpose, or perhaps it's a good purpose, we shall see. But there was an enemy, and a fire yagya was done in order to make the person fall from their position. From Kusha, the grandson of Kshatravridha, was born a son named Prati. The son of Prati was Sanjaya, and the son of Sanjaya was Jaya. From Jaya, Krita was born, and from Krita, King Haryabala. From Haryabala came a son named Sahadev, and from Sahadev came Hina. The son of Hina was Jayasena, and the son of Jayasena was Sankriti. The son of Sankriti was the powerful and expert fighter named Jaya. These kings were the members of the Kshatravridha dynasty. Now let me describe to you the dynasty of Nahusha. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the ninth canto, 17th chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, entitled The Dynasties of the Sons of Pururava. This is chapter 18. Okay. What do you normally do? Read the chapter summary at the beginning? Okay. King Yayati regains his youth. This chapter gives the history of King Yayati, the son of Nahusha. This is a diff- slightly difficult, difficult to listen to a chapter summary because there's, there's no stories and there's no interaction with all of you beloved Vaishnavas, but if you listen just, just for a few minutes. When Nahusha, because I'm going to be quizzing you, when Nahusha, who had six sons, was cursed to become a python, his eldest son, Yati, took sannyas. And therefore, the next son, Yayati, was enthroned as king. By providence, Yayati married the daughter of Shukracharya. Shukracharya was a brahmana and Yayati a kshatriya. But Yayati married her nonetheless. Shukracharya's daughter, named Devayani, had a girlfriend named Sharmishta, who was the daughter of Vrishaparva. King Yayati married Sharmishta also. The history of this marriage is as follows. Once Sharmishta was sporting in the water with thousands of her girlfriends, and Devayani was also there. When the young girls saw Lord Shiva seated on his bull with Uma, they immediately dressed themselves. But Sharmishta mistakenly put on Devayani's clothes. Devyani, being very angry, rebuked Sharmishta, who also became very angry and responded by rebuking Devyani and throwing her into a well. One might question their level of friendship at this point. Okay? Just by accident, you know, here's I'm with my girlfriends. We go down to the river. We go bathing. We come out. We find our clothes. By mistake, I get the wrong clothes, and she throws me down a well. We might question the level of friendship in this uh, situation. However, 
We'll see what happens. By chance, King Yayati came to that well to drink water. You know, of course, this is the, this is the story. The king comes and saves the poor girl from the well. There must have been other girls that were thrown down wells, and there wasn't a king who walked by at that time. We don't hear their story, do we? Because there is no story. That's it, finished at that point. So King Yayati came by, and he found Devayani and rescued her. Thus Devayani accepted Maharaj Yayati as her husband. Why, if you pull a girl out of a well, would she then have to marry you? Or would she marry you? Just because you're a hero? What's, what's the solution here? Huh? Huh? He touched her, plus the fact that she had no clothes on. She was down the well with no clothes on. He pulled her out. Not only had she touched him, but also he'd seen her naked. If you see someone naked, then society presumes that there's a greater relationship there. And then society forces that relationship because what other man is going, you've touched a king, therefore you're the king's wife. Thus, Devayani accepted Maharaj as her husband. Thereafter, Devayani, crying loudly, told her father about Sharmishta's behavior. So she marries the king, but she still wants to, you know, get her own back on Sharmishta for throwing her down the well. Upon hearing the, of this incident, Shukrachari was very angry and wanted to chastise Vrishaparva, Sharmishta's father. Okay? So what's the father had to do? He's home reading the Shastras. He didn't do anything wrong. Vrishaparva, however, satisfied Shukracharya by offering Sharmishta as Devayani's maidservant. So now Sharmishta gets to go with Devayani, and I wonder what Devayani's going to think about this, that the friend that she threw down the well is now living in the same palace. Thus, Shar- <laughs> talk about soap opera. Thus, Sharmishta, as the maidservant of Devayani, also went to the house of Devayani's husband. When Sharmishta found her friend Devayani with a son, she also desired to have a son. Therefore, at the proper time for conception, she also requested Maharaj Yayati for sex. When Sharmishta became pregnant also, Devayani was very envious. Okay? I'm his wife and you're just meant to be serving me. But now I've had a son and you've had a son also. Somehow or another, you, you're bearing the king's child. You've been elevated to a higher position or as good as a position as me. It's like a member of the English royal family. One of them has an affair and then that son becomes elevated to the level of a prince. It would be in all the Sunday newspapers. How is that possible? How, is, how can you be elevated? So in great anger, she immediately left for her father's house and told her father everything. Shukracharya again became angry and cursed Maharaj Yayati to become old. But when Yayati begged Shukracharya to be merciful to him, Shukracharya gave him the benediction that he could transfer his old age for the youth of his younger son, whose name was? Puru. Very good. I'm just testing you. So, and he could transfer his old age and invalidity to some young man. Yayati exchanged his old age for the youth of his youngest son, Puru, and thus he was able to enjoy with young girls. Omagyana timarandasya gyananjana shalakaya chakshuram meditam jena tasmai shi gurave namaha. Now sometimes 
Um, they put they put me in my wheelchair. They wipe the drool from my mouth, and they wheel me down to Bhaktivedanta Manor to give a talk. <laughs> so one day is today. They've got me all scrubbed up, <laughs> and they they wheel me down. The the talk that I was meant to give was then cancelled, and so they've given me another verse that no one else wanted to give a class on. <laughs> it's all about naked young girls being thrown down wells and marrying this one and being cursed. And Yeah, that sounds like a creepy moya class. Let's bring him in. <laughs> it's got nothing to do there with pure devotional service. He'll be able to talk for a long time about that. Um, look, the important message here that I would wish to convey to you today... Um, is that, uh, oh, my word, we didn't do a verse. <laughs> There's so much reading and no verse. Shukadeva Goswami said, O King Parikshit, as the embodied soul has six senses, King Nahusha had six sons named Yati, Yayati, Samyati, Ayati, Viyati, and Kriti. Okay, now we come to the verse. Rajam Naichad Yati Pitra Rajam Naichad Yati Pitra Rajam Naichad Yati Pitra Datang Tat Parinamavit Datam Tat Parinamavit Yatra Pravishta Purushaha Yatra Pravishta Purusha Yatra Pravishta Purusha Atmanam Nava Budyate Atmanam Nava Budyate Rajam Naichadyati Pitra Datangtat Parinamavit Yatra pravishta purusha Atmanam nava budyate Rajam naichadyati pitra Dattam tat parinamavit Yatra pravishta purusha Atmanam nava budyate Gentlemen, And ladies, please. Rajam, the kingdom, na aichat, did not accept. Yati. 
the eldest son Yati. Pitra by his father. Datam offered. Tatparinamavit knowing the result of becoming powerful as a king. Yatra wherein Pravishta having entered. Purusha such a person. Atmanam self realization. No, not. Ababuddhyate will take seriously and understand. Translation When one enters the post of king or head of the government, one cannot understand the meaning of self realization. Knowing this, Yati, the eldest son of Nahusha, did not accept the power to rule, although it was offered by his father. Kindly repeat. When one enters the post of king, or head of the government. One cannot understand the meaning of self-realization. Knowing this, Yati, the eldest son of Nahusha, did not accept the power to rule, although it was offered by his father. Purport. Self-realization is the prime objective of human civilization. And it is regarded seriously by those who are situated in the mode of goodness and have developed the what qualities? Brahminical qualities, yes. Kshatriyas are generally endowed with mm, material qualities conducive to gaining material wealth and enjoying sense gratification. But those who are spiritually advanced are not interested in material opulence. Indeed, they accept only the bare necessities for a life of spiritual advancement in self-realization. It is specifically mentioned here that if one enters political life, especially in the modern day, one loses the chance for human perfection. Nonetheless, one can attain the highest perfection if one hears Srimad Bhagavatam. This hearing is described as Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. Maharaj Parikshit was involved in politics, but because at the end of his life he heard Srimad Bhagavatam from Shukadev Goswami, he attained perfection very easily. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has therefore suggested Stane Stita Shrutikatam Tanuvan Manobir Yiprayasho Jitta Jito Pyasi Taistrilokyam. Regardless of whether one is in the mode of passion, ignorance, or goodness, if one regularly hears Srimad Bhagavatam from the self realized soul, one is freed from the bondage of material involvement. Oma jnana timirandasya gyananjana shilakaya chakshuram miritang jena tasmai shi gurave namah shila prabhupada ki jai This is probably not a verse and a purport to read to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Probably not. Or at least you might want to wait some time. We were in a situation not so long ago when the now Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was saying to the devotees that he's very pleased with organizations that do charitable work. ISKCON in various capacities and other organizations were invited to the House of Commons. Prime Minister came in and gave a talk about the power of doing good work for other people. 
And politicians, including him, are very happy with religious people. You might not think it, but they are. Religion comes in for a lot of bashing these days. It's not favored by intellectuals. If you go to a dinner party, which I don't suggest you do, but sometimes we do get invited to vegetarian dinner parties where there are thinking people there. And the question is, directed towards the devotee, well, surely you don't believe in, in a God as a person. You know, and the spoon is just held just here because they're not going to eat unless they hear the... And they know it's a challenging question, but they say, surely. <laughs> and there's a little laugh in their voice. Surely. Surely you don't believe in God as, a, as an objective reality. Surely it's a subjective reality which is only really appreciated by the person. Belief is a, a form of faith in something that doesn't exist, but it helps your internal emotional life. And we here can prevent um, you know, depression and uh, be helpful in healing. Oh, and by the way, religion makes people do you know, good things for other people in the belief that there is a God that's watching, and after death, that God will judge you on all the good things that you've done in life. But <laughs> surely... You don't really believe that God exists. And then the devotee, me or whoever's at the dinner party, is supposed to say, well, actually, and then you're supposed to take them up a ladder, up a ladder. Because if you say you do believe in God, the only God that they know is the one that's painted on the roof, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and that was painted by Michelangelo 500 years ago. And uh, that's not quite the the God that, you know, we might say that we believe in. Or they believe in, or, or they're thinking of the God that makes people, you know, plant bombs in mosques. Or they're thinking of the God that, you know, people become inspired to do all kinds of things in the name of, in his name. So that's the God that we also as devotees don't believe in. We don't believe that in that tribal God, that politically motivated God, that um, perpetually old man who's just um, struggling to create the world and get people to follow his, his words. So even the word God comes from the German Gut. And the German Gut comes from the ancient Sanskrit Hut. And the ancient Sanskrit Hut means that to which oblations are due. And an oblation is called a hotra. And a priest which offers oblations into the sacrificial fire, uh, or if you're an American, sacrificial fire, um, is known as a hotri. So there is a direct link between a fire yagya and the old German word for God and our present word for God. But now that has become separated from its real meaning. So therefore we stand a chance we stand a chance when we first explain the Vedic understanding of the multi-level God. The multi-level God. Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan. And sometimes I find that's a bit of a, a shoehorn into what is actually a very highly elevated concept. And many people don't give you a chance because the God that they don't believe in is the God that they think you believe in also. But you have to sort of get underneath their conception and say, actually the God that you don't believe in, my dear friend at the dinner party, 
that's the God I don't believe in. They go, oh, <laughs> I knew it. I knew the Hare Krishnas had a different God than the one that I don't believe in. So they're relieved. And then you go, however, however, <laughs> let me explain something to you. Okay. So we have to be clever. We have to be clever and we have to be compassionate in explaining the God concept to others. It's very unfashionable. However, people like politicians are very concerned because if you count up the hours of good work, charity work, helping other people, helping the old, helping children, setting up trusts, sending money to, uh, you know, Nepal when there's an earthquake or Kent when there's an earthquake or, or, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, uh, good work that good people who do believe in God do, if you count the value of that work, it comes to many, many billions. So the government is in a bit of a quandary. Most of them do not believe in God as an objective reality, but they like the good work that people who do believe in God do. You know, if you can just keep religious people believing in God, that's good. That'll save the government billions. So have an event, invite them to the House of Commons and say to them, you're all doing really wonderful work and we really appreciate what the faith communities are doing. And that's why ch religious organizations are always charitable organizations in this country. You know, ISKCON in this country, the, in the UK, is given thousands of pounds, tens of hundreds of thousands of pounds per year by the government for doing the work that we do in spreading Krishna consciousness. Did you know that? You didn't know that. There's an awful lot of money. It all goes upstairs and they spend it on the Mercedes and things. You know. But that money is given because spreading God consciousness is one of the four things. Oh, Mother Kalangan is going to get me now. Is spreading, Krishna, is spreading God consciousness is counted as one of the good things that an organization can do that is for the benefit of people who live in the United Kingdom. So never underestimate what it is that this organization is doing. We're not just trying to superimpose an external, foreign, highly esoteric God on the minds of the British people. What we're doing is we're turning British people into better versions of themselves. And this is one thing I wanted to say to you in the class, that whenever we read Srimad Bhagavatam or any of the Shastras, you have to see that Shastra is for doing two things. One thing all of you will find easy to understand because this is an ashram. The other thing you may not find easy to understand because you're not politicians. In an ashram, you've taken ashraya, shelter. And basically that means that you've come to the conclusion that there's no more enjoyment in the material world. Either you're really sad people who never got it together to have a happy life or you're all great philosophers who really understand the truth about the material world. The test is, if I come back in 10 years, who's still here? If you're still here, you're a great philosopher. If you're not here, you're just a sad case. Who couldn't get it together in the material world? So you joined an ashram. <laughs> so here's the point. Shastra does two things. Shastra says, you're in a, an unfortunate position. Material life is temporary. Material happiness is temporary. Only flickering. Material happiness is followed by distress. 
Therefore, anyone intelligent should immediately leave that place as an intelligent man leaves a toilet after doing his business. That level of detachment must be there. And then the Navayogendras, they told the king, they said, if you have that level of understanding that nothing that you try to enjoy is just like a, just like a beautiful mango reflected in a lake. If you look at the mango and you think, let me enjoy a mango, you reach out and touch the mango, it will dissolve in your hands. Only when you understand that material pleasure is like that, that at that moment the guru appears in your life. Before then, you don't get a guru. Oh, I can't find a guru. Where's the guru? I can't find a guru these days. You know, there's no good gurus. No, because you still want to enjoy material happiness. As soon as you stop wanting to enjoy material happiness, the guru appears in your life. In, I'm not saying that because I'm an ISKCON politician. I'm saying that because Krishna says it to Uddhava. He says the first symptom is that a person, he's, when, he, when he wants to break free from the material world, whether or, knows, whether or not he knows the philosophical basis for it, what happens is that he starts thinking within his own mind, and Krishna says his own mind becomes the guru. He starts, uh, he starts seeing everything as guru. Everything is teaching him a lesson. Okay? Everything is teaching him a lesson. Newspaper article, you know, a snatch of conversation with a friend, a tree, a mountain, person who makes arrows, 24 gurus, 25, 26, everyone seems to be teaching him something. And then eventually he meets the one person that summarizes each of those gurus into one sadhu. And then he accepts that, that person. But only if he accepts that that person knows more than him and can actually help him. So that's one line. That's one line. If you're on that line, good for you. Most people aren't. And what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Are you going to live in the ashram and not care about anybody else? Yes, if you're selfish. And it's very easy to be selfish and spiritual. And that most people are selfish and spiritual. They're very spiritual, thank you very much, but they're selfish because they don't go beyond themselves to help others. So, I'm a doctor. I learn. I spent seven to ten years in medical training. They've set me free on the world. And I see a man fall over on the street, and he's having a stroke. And I sit there with my hands crossed, and I watch it all happen. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know, all about, I know exactly what's happening now. See, what's happening now is basically there's a blood clot somewhere in the brain. I could do something about it, but why should I bother helping these people? He probably ate a lot of meat. He probably had a lot of sinful life. I'm a doctor. I'm qualified. So a sadhu that thinks like that, he's not actually a sadhu. He's a kripana. He's a miser. He's keeping Krishna consciousness to himself. There's an old story of a beautiful mango tree beautiful mango tree Jiva Goswami tells the story beautiful mango tree but not one human being would pick the mango not one bird would come and settle in the tree and even as much as pick the mango and the sadhu passed by and he said to the other sage he said why is no one eating the beautiful mangoes from this tree he said because in his last life this mango tree was a sadhu who just did not give the results of his knowledge to others so he was born as a beautiful fruit tree, heavily laden with fruit, but no one is interested.
This is his karma for not giving what he has. So whatever you have, you must give if someone else is suffering. So uh, when you're in that position and you reach out, that is a sadhu. You know the story of the sadhu and the scorpion? The sadhu was trying to rescue the scorpion. The scorpion stung him. He did it a few times. He said, well, I keep rescuing you. You keep stinging me. You st- uh, no, sorry, the scorpion said, I keep stinging you and uh, you keep rescuing me. What's the, what's the story? He said, well, he said, you're a scorpion. Your nature is to sting. You can't help it. And my nature is, I just have to save people who are suffering. So I keep, I keep rescuing you. So that's a sadhu. Paradukha dukhi. That others, uh, the, 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 the suffering of others is his own suffering. This is a genuine sadhu. So therefore the sadhu has two roles. Speaking of ourselves as sadhus, our job is to go home back to Godhead in one lifetime. Why are we so uh, uh, pursuant of that idea, going back home, to, back to Godhead in one lifetime? Because Srila Prabhupada said that that is possible. He said it's possible to go back to Godhead in one lifetime if you follow his instructions. And so we believe that and that's what we do. However, we're also interested in helping others go back to Godhead. And I'll tell you one thing more. The sadhu is also interested in making sure that Krishna's arrangement for human society is made more proper. Made more proper. People are always falling from the mode of goodness to the mode of passion. They're always falling from the mode of passion to the mode of ignorance. And they're always falling from the mode of ignorance into animal forms of life. And a sadhu sees that and uh, wants to do something about it. Jairada Gokulananda. <coughs> so, here is the situation. That Shastra does two things. It describes to you how you can go back to Godhead and how you can take other people with you. But Shastra also says how people can have a happy, peaceful, human form of life without, with, with a minimum of falling down through the modes of material nature. And it's a sadhu's job to do both. Therefore, a sadhu can have absolutely no hope in material pleasure, absolutely no hope in material pleasure, but can still go to a wedding and give blessings. How is that possible? How can a sadhu who knows that there's absolutely no hope in material life, and no matter what you do, there will never be any ultimate pleasure in marriage or children or vehicles or soft furnishings or holidays or all the travel or wealth, all the good food, all the blessings that are given by a sadhu at a wedding, okay? At the same time, he or she understands, actually none of that will give these people pleasure. So what is he doing? What is she doing? Giving a curse? No, because the point is that everybody has to have a life. You know, human life. You have to have human life. And therefore, you have to be clean, honest, truthful. You have to have elevated, noble thoughts. You have to give in charity. You have to plant food. And you have to create the next generation. And I'm sorry, but Srimad Bhagavatam says a lot about creating the next generation. And here's a chapter in which basically, you know, we've just been reading like a biblical account. Such and such begat such and such. Such and such was the son of such and such. Such and such had five daughters was the, and they begat the sons of 
what is the point? In the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam, we discover that Srimad Bhagavatam is like a fruit where there's no skin, no pips, no stone, no seeds, but it is all nectar. It is just like juice, rasam. So why is it then we slow down on getting to Krishna and Krishna's Leela to hear about the family, basic family tree of people who were Kshatriyas? Because this is at the beginning of the universe. And they were doing what they were doing because God himself wanted them to do it. God wants a population. Strange as it may seem, of course, it might suit his purposes if no one wanted to come to the material world. But having wanted to come to the material world, you have to live in as God-conscious a way as possible. And there is no time for God-consciousness if you're running from a cruel king. You see people in the world today, they don't... Religion is something that you can practice when you have something to eat. Very, very few people are like uh, uh, Ranti Dave or... Uh, who was the other one? Ranti Dave or uh, uh, um, Shibi. You know, there are very few people who can not eat and worship God. You know, we know how difficult it is for us when fasting and we're trying to remember Krishna. It's very difficult. We have to have a whole festival going on with Abhishek's and Harinam and, you know, central London and flags and, you know, and, uh, you know, speeches before we can fast and think of Krishna. If it's just you on your own, it's extremely difficult. In the 11th canto, Krishna is speaking to Uddhava. He says, it's very difficult for a sadhu to remain a sadhu when he's being criticized by others. And Krishna says that to Uddhava. He says, because he's telling the story of the Avanti Brahmin. And the Avanti Brahmin was someone who was being persecuted. Even urine was being thrown at him. But he was... He remained in transcendental consciousness. So Krishna himself, that very same Krishna who speaks Bhagavad Gita, he says, if you're a sadhu, it's very difficult to remain a sadhu when you're hungry, very difficult to remain a sadhu when people around you are persecuting you. So if there's a bad government, there will be persecution of sadhus. There will be persecution of sadhus. They'll be the first ones to go. There's persecution all over the Middle East at the moment. Who's the first ones to go? Good people. There's a lot of good people who have been killed. Why? Because bad people don't like good people telling other people to be good. Because good often involves not doing what the bad people want the good people to do for them. So, King Vena. King Vena had to be removed by the Brahmanas with their high-sounding curses. Why? Because civilization would have been destroyed. So bad people have to be removed sometimes. However, what do you do in Kali Yuga? Kalo Sudra Sambhava, there's so many bad kings, so many sudras becoming kings. So the situation is that the sadhus have to speak and act in such a way that there's good government. And therefore sometimes the sadhus become confidential advisors to leaders and kings. And this is very important. And then we are meant to be able to tell people how they can have a better country. So, let's say, Sutapa tomorrow got a call from 10 Downing Street. Okay, Sutapa, you get a call from 10 Downing Street. 
and the Prime Minister wants you to come and, you know, we need some spiritual ideas that are going to make this country more spiritual. Now, you can say everybody should chant these non-sectarian names of God, which come from a Hindu sect in Bengal. The non-sectarian, totally non-sectarian, except we don't belong to any other religious sect. You can say that. But you may have to come up with something that's a little non-generic, a little more universal. You may have to go for principles by which any human being can be peaceful, good, clean, and can rise from the mode of ignorance to passion and from passion to goodness. That is there in Shastra. And these great sages, they teach those things. So their blessings to human society is things like the Dharma Shastras of Yagyavalkya and Bodhayana. They tell people how to be good husbands, good wives, good sannyasis, good kings, good teachers. And so we have to be able to quote those things because somebody may just ask us sometime. You see? One time a man came to Srila Prabhupada and he was arguing that all the, that no one should ever eat meat and uh, the whole world should be vegetarian. And Prabhupada said, that's not in, that's not in Shastra. It's not in the Shastras. You won't find that. You'll find that, you know, people who want to be very quickly elevated in God consciousness, that's a principle that they follow. But that's not a principle for everybody. So when we talk of regulative principles, we have to talk about regulated principles according to the person that sits in front of us. If I go to the doctor today, he will give me a set of regulative principles according to the disease that I follow, that, that I have. And if my friend comes in at the same time and he goes into the same surgery, the doctor will give him a set of regulated principles. Drink this three times a day after meals. Okay? But the prescription that he's given to me is a different prescription. So a sadhu or a rishi has to know what prescription is for you and how can I elevate you. And he has to, to a certain extent, get involved in human life. That's why when they had the In God We Trust party and the photographs began to come back of a devotee uh, politician who was running for office. He had his tilak, but he had on a, a suit, a suit and a tie, and Prabhupada was pleased. And eventually it, you know, it petered out. But the point is that the In God We Trust party, it was something, it was a contribution. So we have a contribution to make. This movement has a contribution to make apart from giving people the message of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. When people become interested in spirituality, they often mean a whole range of things. So the whole range of things are things that we can offer uh, to them. So I wanted to say that because um, Shastra says it, and we are called upon to emblemize or symbolize Shastra uh, in the world. So therefore, we uh, we find that sadhus sometimes give uh, uh, blessings. Um, but so why is the politician restricted here? Why does he lose his? Uh, if he enters political life, he loses his chance of God realization. Well, here we discover it's because, uh, or elsewhere in the Bhagavatam, we discover that it's because um, immediately you become a politician. Immediately you enter that arena. If you're not careful to remain detached, you become attached to a particular party. And when party spirit comes in, what happens is that 
this is my party and that is your party. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you do that, you make friends and enemies. You distinguish between souls. As soon as you do that, you will speak to one person in one way and another in another. So then it, it becomes difficult. But there will always be politics wherever there's human beings. So therefore, a sadhu has to be on guard to be always uh, careful. Now let me tell you a little bit about Shukracharya because uh, Shukracharya is one such sage that whose name is invoked when we give um, blessings at a wedding because he's, uh, he's identified with um, all good, you know, uh, um, he's identified with uh, wealth and happiness and ornamentation and Venus and perfumes and he's the son of uh, Brigu, the great sage Brigu Muni. And Brigu Muni, of course, was the son of Brahma. And he's known as Asuracharya, Asura Acharya, because he's the, the spiritual master of the, uh, the demons. And um, he studied under someone called Angiras. You may need this in the future, so listen carefully. He studied under Angiras, but he was disturbed because Angiras had a pet favorite, and the pet favorite was his own son. Uh, his own son was Brihaspati. Because his own son Brihaspati, he's closely aligned with Jupiter, or wisdom, or spiritual knowledge. So then he left that ashram, and he went to study under Gautam Rishi. And he learned a special mantra that could bring people back from the dead, the Ritu Sanjeevani uh, mantra. He got that as a result of performing penance, to uh, Shiva. When he got married, when Shukracharya got married, he married the son, uh, excuse me, <sighs> too much watching the news. Um, Shukracharya married the uh, Urjaswati, the daughter of Priyavrata. And uh, from Urjaswati, he had four children, uh, two famous who went on to become the gurus of uh, Prahlad Maharaj, whose names were Shandana Namarka then Twashtra and Dharata. He also married the daughter of Indra, whose name was Jayanti, and uh, the daughter of her was Devayani. Okay, so this is the family tree. You never know when you're going to be asked to give a class on these things, like today. So uh, we know from the Vamanadev incident that Shukracharya was very much in favor of the demons and uh, therefore he used to do things that were opposed to the gods um, so when uh, Lord Vishnu came in the form of Vamanadev uh, then Bali Maharaj he wanted to give a great gift to uh, Vamanadev and Shukracharya prevented him by entering into the Gindi the water pot with which he was going to make the offering of water and there were some battles, and this was in the days before the uh, the gods and the demons had, you know, before the gods had churned the ocean of nectar and got the pot of nectar and all this. So sometimes they would die. He would bring the demons back to uh, life. And um, there there's some problems. So then there was, uh, the demigods said, well, let us send one of us to learn this Mrita Sanjeevani mantra. So they sent someone called uh, Kacha, who was the son of Brihaspati. He came 
and he learned and because Shukracharya was a true Brahmin equal to all he taught him you know he taught him even though uh, he may have known that it was to help the gods he taught him so then what happened was that the demons saw that Kacha was learning this Sanjeevani mantra they wanted to prevent him and so they killed him okay. talk about friends and enemies so they killed him but his guru Shukracharya brought him back to life again they killed him again he brought him back to life again don't kill my disciple. Come on, boys. Be reasonable. So when they killed him again, they burnt, uh, they burnt his body, and they put the powdered ash in a drink, and then they gave the drink to their uh, guru. <laughs> so then he drank, he drank this drink with the body of Kacha inside, <laughs> and they told him, <laughs> you've just drunk your disciple. <laughs> So then he, he said, well, he said, I'm going to have to teach him the Sanjeevani Mantra so that he can become restored. And then because he knows the Sanjeevani Mantra, uh, he can then, he can restore himself. So he taught him, inside him, he taught him the Sanjeevani Mantra. Kacha burst out from an opening in his guru's stomach, killed his own guru, killed Chukracharya. Uh, but he was whole again. The, the, the Sanjeevani mantra means all the different parts of your body start, you know, coming back together again, and you know there you are. So then, uh, because he then knew the Sanjeevani mantra, then he brought his guru back to life, and on it went. In the meantime, uh, Devayani uh, fell in love with uh, Kacha, and uh, that, that brings brings us into the story that we've just been reading from um, from the Srimad Bhagavatam here. So, um, you see, the, the reason why it's important is because in the beginning of our, uh, just going back to what I was saying, and then I'll finish. In the beginning of our spiritual life, it is easy to have a certain amount of, as, as Krishna also saying to Uddhava, he says that um, in, uh, uh, there's this word, nirvina, nirvina, not navina, uh, but nirvina uh, means disgust. Disgust. When you're really disgusted with something. The level of disgust is, dis- is disgust in the story with uh, Maharaj Rishabdev. That, uh, you know, uh, what is the level of disgust necessary for detachment from the material world? It's like when a man goes and passes stool. There's no, you know, he walks away. Right, you go to the toilet, that's it, pull the chain, flush it away. There's no interaction. Okay? It's just you just gotta get out of that place. Okay? Uh so that level of non emotional detachment is what a man enjoys just prior to becoming detached from the material world. How does that happen? Because several times I have tried to enjoy this material world in this life. Several times I tried to enjoy my last life and the last life before that. It's never done me any good. I've come to the point of nirvina. See, normally there's sankalpa and vikalpa, accepting something and rejecting something. But sankalpa depends on remembering a previous past experience that is very nice. But sometimes that's dominated by the mode of ignorance and you forget that experience or you forget pain 
So a man drinks alcohol on a Saturday night, he drinks too much, and then he suffers on a Sunday morning, and then it comes to Saturday night again, but he's forgotten. Okay, so the sankalpa is sort of inoperative. He can't make the right dis level of discrimination. But disgust helps with that. However, disgust may uh, bring you to the point of trying to aspire for spirituality in, 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 in one particular frame. However, Krishna explains to Uddhava, very interesting, he said, if a man is disgusted with the material world, I've provided jnana yoga. If a man is n not disgusted with the material world enough, then I've provided karma yoga. He said, however, bhakti yoga is better than both. So the, the purport to that is that just being disgusted with the material world is not enough to bring you to the level of an active love of God. It's not enough to bring you to bhakti. Bhakti is something in itself. So at the lowest stages of bhakti, there are two contaminations. One is jnana mishra bhakti and one is karma mishra bhakti. Sometimes we find people come, they worship Krishna, take part in kirtan, but they're interested in how Krishna can help them pass an exam, get a nice wife, get a nice car. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's worship of Krishna. It's singing to Krishna, praying to Krishna. It's shravanam kirtanam vishnu smaranam, but it's mixed with uh, karma. Then sometimes people come and uh, they're very detached, very detached from the material world. They have uh, you know, a very small amount of possessions. Everything is in a cardboard box. They exhibit no attachment whatsoever. But that does not purchase Krishna. In fact, sometimes it can stop a person preaching. You're so detached, you don't care anything about the material world. You don't really care about other people's suffering. But you do your you, you do your services as if you know you are helping because Srila Prabhupada did care about people who are suffering. So everything we do is a service to him. So we we do all the things we do, whatever it is. We outreach, we go and we talk to others and invite them here. But if our bhakti is contaminated with jnana, we may be insufficiently involved in really wanting to help other people. It's really all about me. And that is death for a missionary organization. Jnana Mishra Bhakti is death for a missionary organization, just like Karma Mishra Bhakti is death for a missionary organization. A Karma Mishra Bhakti doesn't really want to preach because he's interested in enjoyment, and he thinks that other people should pray to God to get enjoyment too. A Jnana Mishra Bhakti doesn't go preaching because I'm not pure enough to preach. I'm not pure enough to preach. And if I go to preach, I might get contaminated. I don't really want to help other people because they're sinful people. And asat sangatyaga, that's the mark of a Vaishnava. So I'll go somewhere and I won't preach. So both of those things, So a, 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 a missionary movement like ours can only function on pure bhakti. And if we're not pure bhakti, then we have to find someone who is. So ultimately, if we do those things that the pure bhakta, Srila Prabhupada told us to do, even if it's vaidi, even if there's no, you know, there's no real love in it at all. If you just keep doing it, then we're doing that thing that he has asked everyone to do, and then we become purified. So, for instance, you know, a, a devotee is, it's like sometimes people say, 
well, why did Prabhupada go to a, a, you know, a spiritual part of the world, you know, a holy place, a pilgrimage place, and then tell the devotees to develop it? You know, now there's buildings all over the place. Why go to Mayapur and develop it? It's a holy place. We should just go and, you know, keep it pure and clean. Because the only reason we have these beautiful temples is so that the world will have a place to come. That's why, you know, Prabhupada even installed uh, Western-style toilets in Mayapur. Because his Western-style disciples would come and so that it would be comfortable and they would stay for a while. Okay? So you just think... That's everything that we do in ISKCON is so that people will come and take advantage of Krishna in some way or another. That's why devotees can go to a place and they will want to clean up the streets around the temple. The devotees won't look out from the temple window and think, oh, these foolish karmis. Just see how they drop rubbish everywhere. Just see how the sewage is overflowing. The devotees themselves will go out and clean. It's like in Detroit. And, you know, the, the, the Fisher Mansion in Detroit is a beautiful building and a beautiful neighborhood. But the neighborhood went down over the past 50 years. Now it's coming up again. But it was in the middle of a neighborhood where no one was caring about their houses. No one was caring about the street outside the temple. So the devotees went out and did the gardening. You know, 100 yards this way. All street lights, nicely working, flowers, lawns, you know, and 100 yards that way. Why? Because devotees do not only care about the reputation of the temple, but do care about people. Otherwise, why you know why feed people? Why sing to people? Why do we do it? It's it's for uh, uh, helping the world become a better place. Now, someone who is a Gyanamishabhakta may say, <laughs> "Prabhu, you got to understand, this world." can never be made into a better place. One thing, let's get one thing straight. Krishna consciousness is about seeing the world as a very bad place and just getting out. But there's something more. There's something more that Shastra says. Yes, that's true for you. And that's true for others who are willing to hear that message. But for others, it may be important just to eat, just to not be a victim of persecution, either domestic persecution or political persecution. And that's why now we see devotees working in different capacities. They go train in the ashram, but they may join the United Nations, or they may join this or join that, or they may go to another university, because devotees are spreading out and they're doing things in the world to raise up the consciousness in the world, in places where they are capable of having influence. So now the study of, because of what devotees have done in Oxford, the study of Hinduism is changing all over the world to include Krishna. And yet, someone may say, why would a devotee go to a university and get a mundane degree? Well, I'll tell you why. Because through a mundane degree, you can have an influence on another person. Why would a devotee go and become a, uh, become a, uh, whatever, whatever it is. But how you take Krishna consciousness and how you do these two things, elevate people to distinct and particular Krishna consciousness, a consciousness of Krishna as explained in Bhagavad Gita, and how you give other messages and lift up the world. It's extremely important. Always two functions to do because Shastra does those two functions. Okay. Otherwise, I might say to this young man, right, I might say to this young man, what's the point of being a dentist? Okay? 
except when it comes to doing my teeth, of course. Then, being a dentist is a very good occupation. But apart from doing my teeth, what's the point of being a dentist? You're just there surrounded by meat-eating karmis all day long. You're looking, Prabhuji, you're looking into the mouth of meat-eaters. That's your constant meditation, looking into the mouth of meat-eaters, fornicating karmis. They don't follow any of the religious principles. They overeat. Everything they eat is not offered to Krishna. And then their teeth rot, and then they come to you. What kind? You're an initiated disciple. What kind of, you know, job is that? You should be sitting in Vrindavan chanting the holy names. Okay. Well, we're lucky that there was one person who didn't go to Vrindavan and chant the holy names forever, because none of us, absolutely none of us, would be sitting in this place. And this would be a a golf club and a very nice country country mansion for some rich people in Radlett. But it's named Bhaktivedanta Manor because someone understood the value of spreading Krishna consciousness. But aside from that, he's a dentist because he's alleviating pain. He really feels for people's pain. <laughs> they come to him and they're in pain. And he sets them free from that pain and it gives them advice. He gives them good counsel. You see? And we need a lot more people like that. Relieve the world. The world is in pain. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, it's for lack of Krishna consciousness, but Krishna consciousness comes in different degrees. And how to uplift the world degree by degree. And for those people who are ready, you give them direct Krishna consciousness. Okay? And for those people who are not, you say, what's, what's the prescription for this person? How can I help this person to the next level? To so be useful for society in general. Useful for the world. Useful to your spiritual master. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much.